How many of you have ever been to a race of Pinewood Derby cars or Awana Grand Prix cars? Raise your hand. You've been to Awana Grand Prix? Or okay. Um, for the rest of you, the students that are participating in those kind of things, they make these little homemade cars out of pine wood, and, um, and, and the cars, they have no internal power source. They can't, they can't move on their own. They only go by gravity. Gravity makes the cars go. When, whenever they stop using gravity, they, they stop, right? They cannot, they cannot suddenly keep going in their own power. That is us, people, okay? That's us. Spiritually, this car is me. This, this car is you. None of us are capable of moving under our own power. We come to a complete stop, in fact, when we try to move in our own power, right? Am I right? Yes. With that in mind, open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You find it right after the Corinthian letters, just before Ephesians. Go to Galatians chapter 3, and let's read verses 1 through 5. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. You foolish Galatians. Who's hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made, completely, be made complete by the flesh? Did, did you suffer so much for nothing if, in fact, it was for nothing? So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Stop there. Let me summarize what's going on here. The Galatian experience, their own experience, shows the primacy of faith and spirit. Uh, by the way, that's the headline you find in our notes. You got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open up your bulletin, look on the left-hand side. You, you'll see that the Galatian experience shows Christians can only move ahead by faith and spirit. We cannot advance under our own power. Now, there are two big textual shifts here in this letter, and each of these matters to our understanding, all right? Take a look up here. First thing you need to notice. Paul is now describing sanctification as well as justification. Previously in Galatians, the apostle was talking about justification, how one is made right before God. Now he adds in sanctification salvation, how one grows in holiness by God. You got it? Prior in the book, it was justification being considered, and that occurs by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Now, justification salvation is still in view, but the camera is pulling back. Okay, the camera's pulling back a little bit to reveal the sanctification of the Christian as well. Second thing, Paul does something that is very rare for him. He uses a particular Greek case to appeal directly to the people to whom he's writing. Most of his letters are addressed to all people of all times, although they use the context of a particular situation. But four times in his writings, only four times, Paul turns and looks directly at people and he says, You! Okay? Two of those four times occur here in this Galatian letter. And he does so because he is utterly flabbergasted. In fact, only in Galatians 3.1 does he ever use this kind of address with the interjection, oh. All right, you, you see it? Some Bibles translate it you, others oh. But the Greek is so easy, even I can do it. Oh works in our language the same way it does in Koine Greek. It's an interjection used when you are surprised or you are angry. In the context, oh, here tells us that we have one furious apostle. I mean, he is furious. And what in the world has God's man so angry that Christians are trying to be sanctified without grace? His, argu his argument is this. You're justified by trusting God's provision. So now live by God's provision. Listen to verse 5 again. This time listen to it from the, from the New Living Translation. I ask you again. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. 
It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. You are this Awana car, right? You began by gravity. If you want to keep going, it's going to take gravity. Same thing. You have no internal power source. Bill Lawrence, who spoke here last week, taught me a very simple way to remember Paul's point. When I was his student at Dallas Seminary, here's what, here's what Bill taught me. The method of justification determines the method of sanctification. The method of justification determines the method of sanctification. If you are justified by the gravity of grace, then your sanctification will also be driven by grace. If you begin this Christian life by the power of grace through faith, then you continue to live the Christian life by God's grace through faith. That is not to suggest that justification and sanctification are the same thing. Each part of salvation, they nonetheless have significant differences. Look at them. One is, one is permanent. Justification is permanent. It's set in heaven. Sanctification is subject to change, and it occurs here on earth. Justification requires nothing but faith from the human. Sanctification requires faith too, but it requires faith and works. But they are each, listen, they're each driven completely by God's grace. They are each received through the Holy Spirit. And this, this is where one traditionally gets some kickback from Christian audiences. Let me, let me tell you about modern Christians, okay? Most modern Christians actually think, deep down, we think that we are sanctified by our own works. We assume, here's how we think, Faith is only for our beginning. That was just for our justification. Now that we're Christians, we assume it's all up to us. The late, great Jerry Bridges called this functional legalism. In his fantastic book, Transforming Grace, which I highly recommend, in Transforming Grace, Jerry explained that what we do is not classic legalism. Now, classic legalism assumes that we have to do certain works in order to be justified before God. We don't do, most modern Christians don't do classic legalism, which is great. Instead, we practice Functional legalism. Functional legalism is the assumption that once we've trusted Christ, from then on, everything is up to us. Grace doesn't matter. Faith doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit doesn't matter. It's all by my fleshly power that I become sanctified, that I become holy. One of the great moments for every parent is the day that their child stands up, right? It's really cool when the little baby, the little, the little crawler finally stands up. But, but a lot of children, when they stand up, are very much like one of my boys, okay? One of my boys crawling along. One day he gets next to the couch and he looks at the couch. Watch him. He's thinking. He's reasoning. He's looking at that couch. He's kind of swaying. And he grabs a hold of the couch and leaning on the power and the strength of the couch, he stands up. <laughs> it was awesome, right? Just fantastic. Oh, you stood. We're so proud. It was great. And then he looked down the couch to what to him was a very, very long couch, right? He looks and he sees a toy. There was a toy that his sister had left on the couch and he wanted that toy right? He wanted that toy. So you know what he did? No, he didn't do what you would do. He didn't rely on the power of the couch and walk his way down. No, he let go, he dropped down, and he crawled, right? <laughs> crawled all the way down to the end of the couch, and then he got to the end and fascinatingly forgot how he got up there. He wanted that toy still. He was reaching for it. Watch it. It was hilarious. Wait, wait, wait. It's, oh, I hate to admit this. We were dying laughing as parents. It was a riot. He <laughs> He's throwing his arm. Ah! <laughs> he wants that. To, he is reaching, but he won't stand. In fact, true story, the kid starts banging his head on the couch, <laughs> desperate, forgetting that the way that you get there is not, is not by crawling. You get there by standing up. Right? Listen, when I decide that I am going to be sanctified by my own strength, that is how I look to God. Just some 
unbelievable, foolish Galatian banging my head against the, against the couch when I revert to the flesh and the law as my means of becoming holy. Paul Tillich, um, theologian from the 20th century, summarized this really tidily. His book, A History of Christian Thought, look what Tillich wrote. Trying to become sanctified through our morality is, is forcing God down on ourselves instead of receiving him to ourselves. Then, this is really well said, then true religion is in danger of being transformed into a mere moral code, close quote. He is exactly right. If my sanctification is up to me, if having begun by faith, I'm now perfected only by some moral code, then I am working, I'm crawling my way to God, which is what every other worldview does, right? But Christianity is singular in that the Bible reveals that God came down to us. We don't have to crawl up to him or force him down on ourselves. That's why Paul talks so much about law in this passage. Look, look especially at verse 5. Verse 5 is describing the difference between biblical Yahweh and paganism. You, you know what paganism is. Paganism teaches that you get the goodies by doing the exact right formula. That's paganism. But God says belief is the key to blessings. Yes, yes, the Christian works. More on that in a moment. But the same grace and faith that, that put us in God's justification will advance us in sanctification. Law formulas can't cut it. There's a second issue, uh, second side of this issue in verses 1 through 5. Having begun in God's spirit, be perfected by the spirit. V verse 3 says, having begun in the spirit. Here's the theology behind that statement. Look at this. This will blow your mind. Look at what God's spirit does. Here's what God's spirit does for us. It's Titus chapter 3. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. Uh, he leads us, Romans 8, John 16. Romans 8, he intercedes for us. means he, he engages with God for us. He bestows spiritual gifts on us, says 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Acts 1, 2 Thess 2, he empowers us, and he, and he makes us holy. He sanctifies us for his service. He testifies, this is awesome, Romans 8, Galatians 4, we'll read later. He testifies to our secure salvation. Talk about justification there. And then sanctification, Galatians 5, he yokes together with us as we walk through this life. God's the Spirit. God the Spirit does all of that for us and more. And notice, these aren't just justification issues. They, they cover our, our life walk with Christ as well. Now, with that in mind, read verse 3 again and let it sink in. In fact, read it with me. Would you, line by line, let's read it together. Ready? How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort. Thank you. The American businessman J.F. Strombeck captures how this plays out in our daily experience. I like this so much I put this quote in our notes. Look, mm. this is from Strombeck's book, Discipline by Grace. The true life then is not, as is so commonly thought, a life lived by the individual with some assistance from God at crucial times. But it is rather a life of God himself by Jesus Christ, his son, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is manifested to those who are yielded to God and are willing to do his will, close quote. He is exactly right. Now we look at that and we realize that having begun by the Spirit, we must yield to God in the same way if we are to continue in our sanctification. Or, or, we look, or we look at that list I, I read you of the things that God's Spirit does, and we realize how ridiculous it would be to try to cut that off. What kind of fool would start with that kind of power and help, totally depending on God's gracious Spirit, only to shift midstream and begin relying on one's own flesh? What lunacy, we think, right? And then we think, thank goodness, we're not like that. 
but we are. All Christians struggle with this. All of us. Let me give you one example. One of the, one of the most godly, spirit-walking men I know wrote me about this passage. We were dialoguing about this passage. Look what he said. He wrote me and he said, Wayne, I am so strongly oriented toward a life lived by the individual with some assistance from God at crucial times that it is depressing. It is especially depressing because I teach others that abiding in Christ is the key to life, yet it seems every day I revert to the default mode without even thinking about it, close quote. Here, here's what it looks like when you try to be sanctified apart from God's spirit. It's like the prevent defense in American football, okay? How many of you either played or watch American football? All right, okay, so you can understand. As an old coach, let me tell you, a team gets the lead in football almost always by playing aggressive defense. Right? You play aggressive defense, and then once they get the lead, it is very tempting for the coach to slide back into this kind of zone coverage that leaves massive gaps in the field, in the secondary. And then, guess what happens? The team loses. All right? They thought that going back to crawling was going to get them the prize. Listen, if you want to win in football, you've got to stay aggressive. If you want to win in sanctification, you've got to keep walking by God's Spirit. As my granddad would have said, you dance with who brung you. Right? Would you, like, would, you, would you like to determine whether you're walking by the Spirit? Let me, let me offer you just two, real quickly, two helpful assessments. I found these very helpful. If you want to know, am I, am I keeping in touch with God's Spirit? Am I, am I walking by the Spirit, being sanctified by the Spirit? Two, two tests for you. First, check your heart and see if you are living with the zeal, the, the joy that you had when you first trusted Jesus. The Apostle John calls this your first love. Are you living your first love? Are, 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 instead of that, are you uptight? Just ask yourself, are you playing tight? That's what I used to say as a football coach. Are, are you guys playing tight? Are, are you, are you uh, fearful all the time? Are you in a prevent-defense way of living? If so, you're not enjoying, just, let me just tell you, you're not enjoying the power and the confidence that is yours if you will just yield to God's spirit. Here's another check. A second check I have found very helpful for me in determining whether I have reverted to crawling instead of standing by the spirit. Ready? Look for perfectionism, okay? <laughs> Check your soul for perfectionism. Uh, Dr. David Siemens gives a great description of why perfectionism is so dangerous. Look, look what he writes, his book, Healing for Damaged Emotions. Perfectionism is a counterfeit for Christian perfection, holiness, sanctification, or the spirit-filled life. Instead of making us holy persons and integrated personalities, that is, whole persons in Christ, perfectionism leaves us spiritual Pharisees and emotional neurotics. Isn't that well said? Perfectionism is the most disturbing emotional problem among evangelical Christians. It walks into my counseling office more than any other single Christian hang-up, close quote. Friends, perfectionism does not lead to the fruit of God's spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you, if you see those things in your heart, then you're likely being sanctified on a regular basis by relying on God. A, a, a resting, a yielding to the Holy Spirit is probably your norm. If you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But the perfectionist will always show these traits instead. Tyranny of regret. That's what I hear most often. Oh, I should have. I ought to have. If only I can't get that tape that keeps playing over and over in my head about what I should have done. Uh, Self-depreciation. Anxiety. Anxiety, huge one in our society. Legalism, 
anger. And by the way, you might want to look out for the denial of anger, which is just as bad as anger. One of my favorite things that back when I did more counseling used to happen fairly often in my office is the, uh, is the person who sits there and goes, but I'm not angry. I just love that. That happened all the time. Um, conditional love. If you're giving love only based on performance, I'm not talking about evaluation and discernment. That's fine. I'm talking about love is only given by performance. Then you are probably in desperate danger of perfectionism. Listen, if those negative traits are true of you, and by the way, every single person struggles with these, those are the default setting of broken humanity. You need to learn to walk in God's spirit and stop crawling in your own flesh. There is no, listen, there's no magic formula for this, okay? It's always going to be a fight, but I want to encourage you, you can learn to stand up in the spirit, just as my son learned to stand up by the couch. It, if you want practical help on how this happens, um, write me an email, okay? Just send me an email. I want practical help in how to stand up in the Holy Spirit. And, and Kirk Perrin, whose birthday is today, uh, is right there, and I will send the email to him, or I'll send it to Tim, or one of these other wonderful disciples we have, and they will, they will hook you up with somebody who will be willing to stand with you. The Galatian experience, j just like our experience, shows the primacy of faith and spirit. That's our first big idea. Now, Read the next section. Let's get our second big idea. Chapter, six, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. Start at uh, verse 6. Now, just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now, the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Faith, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things, talking about the law, the one who does these things will live by them. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was the blessings of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so we could receive the promised spirit through what, everybody? Through faith. Paul goes to the Old Testament scriptures here and he proves what I listed as the headline on the right side of your notes. Look at the top of the right side of your notes. The scriptures also show the primacy of faith and spirit. The scriptures also show the primacy of faith and spirit. This time there are three major points. First one, people of faith are children of Abraham. Now here's what it means to be a child of Abraham. Abraham, you look up the slide, Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, the Almighty graciously took the penalty of Abraham's sins and he set it aside to go on to the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah that would come after Abraham was going to pay for his sin. That covenant of grace was extended, get this, it was extended to everybody who followed Abraham if they would receive it. Now, Abraham's offspring were supposed to be spreading this message through the world, that anyone who believes God is justified by God's grace through faith in the Messiah's payment. Here, let me show you some of the scriptures that describe this Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, verse 6, he, Abram, believed God, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, says God. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, contrast that with what God would establish later, the Mosaic Law Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant 
describes the means by which a person is made right before God. It is all about grace experienced via faith. Abraham's covenant was unilateral. Fancy word, it just means it was based only on what God did. It was a one-way ticket, right? Also, I don't know if you know this, the Abrahamic covenant goes on forever. There is nowhere in the scripture there's ever a stop point for the Abrahamic covenant. By contrast, the Mosaic Covenant details the means by which a Hebrew lived out his relationship with God in holiness. It's all about God's grace still. It's all about faith still, but it adds works. It's bilateral. That means it deals with what God does and what the human does. It's a two-way street. Also, the Mosaic Covenant has a fulfillment point. It does not go on forever. In Galatians, God is telling everyone who trusts Messiah Jesus, Jew and Gentile, that they are all adopted into the Abrahamic covenant. That's what it means to be children of Abraham. Look, William Pettingill's great summary. I put this in our notes. This is a very old book. He said this a long time ago, and I don't think anyone's ever said it better. Paul shows here that the way of salvation for a sinner is by grace plus faith, through faith plus nothing. He shows salvation has been going on for centuries before there ever was any law of Moses. And the way of salvation was then, as it is now, as it must always be, through faith alone, apart from law works. Close quote. That's why Paul calls Christians sons of Abraham. Now, I've got to deal with something right here. Just because of our time and, and space, I've got to deal with this. You look at that sons of Abraham, and you may not think that's really anything to desire. After all. Anti-Semitism is as strong as it ever has been in the world, right? And what about this son business? What, what, who wants to be a boy today? I, I got to tell you, in some circles, being male is a mark of Cain. But our modern reticence is, is missing the point just because of the slant of our era. Think, people, this is actually incredible, wonderful news. The truth is, everyone who trusts God as Abraham did gets an inheritance as a son, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew. It doesn't matter whether you're Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're a girl or a boy. You get an inheritance just like a son would have, a son of Abraham. That's awesome. He's your father spiritually. When I was a kid at church, they taught us a goofy little song about Galatians 3. Everybody stand up, please. Put your books down. Put your notes down. Stand up. Come on, everybody. Stand up. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the song, let me teach it to you. We're going to sing it together. If you don't know the tune, you'll pick it up. It's very, very simple. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, Father Abraham. Very good. Had many sons, and man, it right is this side. Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, a lot faster. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right leg, Father Abraham. Don't fall, many sons, there you go. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right, just a moment, nobody gets hurt. Ready? <laughs> right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, turn around, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, turn around, sit down. Oh, very good. 
Y'all are awesome. It was years, it was years after I learned that song that I was reading Galatians 3 and I finally figured out why they had taught us the song. I finally figured out what it's all about. And now, and now you know as well. We are God's adopted children with an inheritance as sons of Abraham if we trust Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Second big truth. People of faith are not under Moses' law. Read verses 10 through 12 again. 10 through 12. Read it again. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Living under Moses' law brings a curse because it is impossible. It's impossible. No one not named Jesus can keep all of Moses' law. Living under Moses' law brings a curse because it exposes sin. More on that later in the book. By faith, we are freed from that impossible burden. Now, that idea often sparks some wild misunderstandings, so let's think this through. A little later in the Galatian letter, Paul describes our new covenant as law as well, but he describes it as the law of Christ. The, the law we now live by is in line with Abraham's covenant. It's a unilateral law of grace. It's not the bilateral Mosaic covenant of works. We do works, but our works flow out of the grace that we have found in our relationship with Jesus. The, the great Jewish Christian scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who has taught here before, Arnold actually talks like this. He has a very high voice, but I won't do his accent. Arnold says this. He says, this is a brand new law totally separate from the law of Moses. The law of Christ contains all the commandments applicable to a New Testament believer. The reason there's so much confusion over the relationship of the law of Moses and the law of Christ is the two have many similar commandments. For example, nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament as commands. But this does not mean that the law of Moses is still in force, close quote. Just because the new law has similarities doesn't mean the old law is still in force. For example... Uh, most of us here live in Texas. We have Texas driver's licenses, right? That means that we have to live in line with the general laws of Texas, like a speed limit, for instance. But when I moved to Germany from Texas a number of years ago, I got a driver's license in Germany because I had to drive for my job in Germany. The laws aren't the same. And when I'm living in Germany with my German driver's license, I'm no longer under the laws of Texas. For example, they have no speed limit there on the highway, on the Autobahn. If I, had, if I had lived as if I was still under Texas law, they would have killed me, right? You don't do slow on that highway or you die, right? Now, there were a lot of the laws that were similar. A lot of the traffic laws are even, are even the same. But it would have been a huge mistake for me to live under the Texas law because that was no longer in force over me. Now, I know... At this point, I know what you longer-term Christians are about to say. A lot of you have been believers in Christ a long time, and that's great. In that, um, in that bad Swedish accent that you often use, you're going to ask this. You're going to say, but I have heard it taught that Moses' law has various subdivisions, like ceremonial and moral, and some of those continue for Christians. Thank you so much for asking that. I've heard that as well, but I've not heard it from the Bible. The Bible teaches the Mosaic law is ever and all God's word. It is a unit. 
all of Moses' law is instructive and profitable for us. However, all of Moses' law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and we are freed from it. That's why Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what, everybody? Fulfill. Fulfill. Larry Terlizzese, who was a member of this church while he was in seminary, Larry wrote the best response to this I've ever read. I didn't have room to put this in your notes. It's really, really good. Uh, from Larry's article, Law and Grace, he says this. To argue for subdivision in the law, such as ceremonial, dietary, moral, sacrificial, etc., in essence, denies the law's instructional capacities today. The law is either obsolete in its entirety or it is operative in its entirety. And if it is obsolete yet still instructive, and it is, if it's obsolete and still instructive, it is instructive in its entirety today. The law has not been abrogated as if God somehow made a mistake. It was fulfilled. Hence, it has accomplished its purpose. The law was then retired. It serves now only to instruct in righteousness and demonstrate sinfulness. Close quote. Faith and spirit are the rule of our life, not flesh and law. The Galatian experience proves it, the scriptures prove it, and thus people of faith are, are children of grace like Abraham. We are not under the law. Finally, third thing, we are redeemed from the curse. We're redeemed from the curse. Look, verse 13, look at it again. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was that the blessings of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul quotes a ton of Old Testament scripture here to, to prove God's plan. I, I put this in your notes. Uh, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show that if you're going to do any of the law, you've got to do it all. That's what it says. The law says you're going to do any of it, you've got to do all of it. He quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5 to show that the law constantly consumes a person's life. That's what it does. It's what it's designed to do. Deuteronomy 21, and I apologize for the typo. It's actually verse 23, not 33. Uh, Jesus took the curse on himself. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who hangs on a tree uh, on a cross is cursed. Then Paul quotes Genesis 12, 3 to show that, that everybody is blessed through Abraham's covenant. It's a covenant of faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4 to show the righteous live by faith. We can be free, friends. We don't have to live under the law to do so. In fact, we'll consume you. How does one gain such freedom? By trusting Jesus who died on the cross, taking the curse punishment, fulfilling the law. He allowed the Abrahamic covenant to be extended where, the, where righteousness comes to all by faith. But again, look at the passage. This passage includes sanctification. And the honest truth is that you and I very often don't live out our freedom in our sanctification. Let me briefly share some curses with you, some law systems that I see a lot today. I actually had a long list of these, and it was way too long, and I had to edit way down. So I've reduced it to two, okay? And, and I tried to pick the two that I think are most likely to be true of us, of you and of me. First one, the first curse I see very often. These are often undetected, very serious. People who try to perfect themselves, they try to sanctify themselves by personal effort. It, in effect, they make up their own law. Here's what we do. We add to Jesus' commands. We, we take good ideas, what are wonderful, even holy things, and we treat them as if they're Scripture. For example, I knew a pastor who read about this famous Christian who got up every morning at 5 o'clock to study the Bible, right? So this pastor friend of mine, he decided that that was a great discipline for him as well. He was going to get up at 5 o'clock every morning, study the Bible for over an hour every morning. Now, real quickly, is there anything wrong with that? Anything scripturally wrong? Okay, no. Just as a Jew, 
By the way, this is clear in the Bible. A Jew could choose to still keep kosher if he wanted to. As long as he wasn't trusting that for his justification or sanctification, he could keep kosher. So a Gentile pastor can choose to get up at 5 a.m. if he wants to. And my friend did, and he really enjoyed it. However, it wasn't very long before my pastor friend began to view himself as pretty hot stuff. Nobody else was as disciplined as he, right? And he began to see, here was the real problem, he began to see fairly quickly that the root of his holiness, this was subconscious, he didn't think this consciously, but he began to see the root of his holiness was in his own effort, his own early morning effort. Not in God's grace, not, not in following God, partnering with him in yielded submission. Oh no, foolish Galatian, he thought himself the prime mover in his sanctity. And it brought the curse that all legalism brings, right? Because he had to keep all the law, didn't he, right? Think about it. He had to get up how often? Every day. He had to get up every, missed one day. He Because remember, in his mind, it's all up to him. So he misses one day, he loses all of his sanctity. Thankfully, this is awesome. I love how God works. One morning, he got up 5 a.m., and the scripture reading was Galatians 3. And he was reading what you and I have been reading this morning. And the Holy Spirit used this passage to really wake my friend up. He was convicted of his functional legalism. And to his credit, he repented in front of God's Holy Spirit. He got out from under the curse, and then he went back to bed. Good for him. Now, listen, he still has discipline in his life, which is good. It's very good. You should have discipline and spiritual disciplines in your life. But he now fights the lie, and you and I must fight the lie, that our holiness is achieved by our own effort. We've got to fight that lie. Second burden that I often see today, the domination of one's feelings. Living by your feelings is a particularly weird kind of legalism. I think it brings one of the strongest curses. Mm. You see, when a person won't let God guide them, when they won't yield to the Spirit, when they hang on to anger, or, or they nurture bitterness, or feelings of helplessness, or hopelessness, or fear, or shame, um, it becomes an imprisoning curse. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Feelings are great. E emotions are part of God's design for humans. But when feelings set your agenda, it is, it is a particularly horrible kind of legalism. You know what's so awful about it? Not just is it a legalism, but it's one where the law code is always changing. It's always changing on you. In 2011, a sobering book was published, Lost in Translation, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood. This book studies the moral lives of American college students. I want you to listen to this one thought from the book. Um, this is a quote from page 22 of the book. Collegians' default position, talking about the research they'd done, default position was that moral choices are just a question of what feels right inside, whether it arouses a comfortable emotion. One student uttered this typical response. I mean, I guess what makes something right is how I feel about it. But different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what's right and wrong. Close quote. Poor kid. Can you, can you see it? Can you see the curse? Poor guy, I don't think he can see it. He will someday. He, he can never really know what is best, can he? He, he is enslaved to whatever he feels at the moment or whatever somebody else feels at the moment. That's definitely the tyranny of the urgent. Friends, Jesus offers real freedom instead. Look what he did. He paid for the curse so we could live by his spirit instead of our own effort. He died and he rose again so we could live by faith instead of by our feelings. All God's people said, amen. amen. Pray with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray for anyone Anyone studying with me, and I want, to, I want to pray for those who are not justified, anyone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, 
And I ask you to draw them to you right now, please, Lord. Friend, listen. You are not capable of being holy in your own effort. I, I don't care what you read from the Buddha. It doesn't matter what your second grade teacher told you about how wonderful and precious you are. The truth is, I'm sorry, I know it's hard to hear, but it's true. The truth is that you are a sinner and you are separated from God forever. And you know, you know it in your soul. Your experience proves it and the scripture proves it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen, listen, you are precious. You are. You're so precious to God that he sent his only son, fully God, fully human, who died on the cross. He took your curse so that, here's how he put it, anyone who believes in me has everlasting life. You can be justified, made right before God. You have, the, you have the opportunity to follow him in sanctification all because of his grace, all because of the Holy Spirit he gives. Right now, just confess, I, talk to God, He's, he loves you. He's with you right now. Just tell him, I believe in Jesus. I receive Jesus as my Savior. I, I put my life in his hands alone. He died for me and conquered death, and I trust him. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand. Let me be encouraged with you. I want to rejoice. Good for you. Amen. Now, Father, I pray for all of these who are believers here, and, and I pray that you will open our eyes as well for the horror that is our sanctification. Lord, we bring our paganism to you. We bring our legalisms. Look. Lord, we bring, my brothers and sisters and I bring our creative attempts to be perfect apart from trusting you. We bring the nonsense that we lean on things other than your Holy Spirit. Lord, I beg you to open Galatians 3 so we are smitten like my pastor friend was. I pray that you expose whatever it is that we are trusting that is anything other than you. And triune God, draw us back to you and you alone. Make us holy as we partner with you in grace. Amen.